morning we have three sections. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own sinisters, broken sinisters that cannot hold water. That's Jeremiah 2.13. Give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1, 12-14 As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived amongst them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly reigns in Jesus Christ, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable, incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from ourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It is the gift of God. Oh, yes. At Spur, we are God's handiwork, created in Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. Well, happy uh, New Year's Resolution Sunday. <laughs> this is the time of year when we make those pledges to be better people. And uh, statistics say that 55 to 70% of you do that. And you're a good company. The Babylonians and Romans did it as well. And uh, so have I. So have I. I uh, started a liquid diet cleanse thing uh, on the first. And I haven't had caffeine for six days. It's going to be a long sermon this <laughs> Another kind of thread that pops up when you look at what people are resolving to be better at has to do with technology. And uh, less screen time is becoming more and more of a popular New Year's resolution. And I know this is one that I need to embrace. My kids tell me, Dad, you know, you're always on your phone. Now, when I offer uh, reciprocal feedback to them, <laughs> it is not received as well. But I think they're right. I think it is something. You know, it's really something I need to work on. I just, you know, you get distracted. There's so much going on, and it's so easy to be connected. And so many, excuse me. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Still working on that. <laughs> New Year's resolutions. Uh, we, 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 you know, we get there's a culture all around it, and yet we know that they um, they don't always live up to their promise. And we know that the gym is not going to be as crowded in a couple of weeks. You know that, right? And if you're in the dry January group, you know, isn't it a relief to know that it's over just in time?
time for Mardi Gras. Right? You know, it's 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 just it's just some of this sort of a way that we flirt with change. And and so we're going to begin the year here at, at LMCC starting talking about how to change. And uh, Ryan begins our series, our primary series next week, and I'll do kind of a prelude this morning. And underneath it all is the assumption, is kind of a question that we want to wrestle with together. The question is this. Why do our efforts at personal change so often fail? And why do our efforts at personal change so often fail? And um, I'm going to kind of come at it from a very macro perspective uh, this morning. And you know, Ryan's going to lead us through the process, the proper process, uh, beginning next week. And uh, so that's where we're going. There's three parts to the sermon this morning. The first I want to talk about our fix-it culture, our fix-it culture, our obsession with fixing ourselves, fix-it culture. And then I want to talk a little bit about macro problems, macro problems. And then I want to speak to outside intervention. So our fix-it culture, macro problems, outside intervention. That's kind of our flow today because we are... And I'm just start with our fixed culture. We are obsessed with being better, aren't we? We just want to be better, and we, we want to work at it and get there. And I just, so I want to look at the, this cultural piece from several different lenses. I want to look at some some qualities of, of, of USA American culture that are kind of unique. And even if you're from somewhere else, uh, if you've been here for any length of time, you've probably bought in. You've probably bought in. So we're going to look at some cultural factors. We're going to look at sort of the drive beneath it all. And then we talk about how that manifests itself, and then you know, and just assess this, this fix-it culture there. So that's where we're headed here in this first section. And uh, for the first piece, I, I have a colleague, it's kind of a colleague, kind of friend, his name's Mark Russell, and Dr. Mark Russell, and he does a lot of cross-cultural business work. He's identified 15 different scales of culture uh, to help us understand the culture, and he has, we've got a couple we're going to put up here on the screen. So the first scale is our concept of the past, present, and future. And... Uh, Future should be all, you guys have good imaginations, right? So, you know, future should be all the way over on the right. Somehow that didn't translate a little bit. But he says, you know, Americans are very focused, we're in between present and future. We're, we're always looking ahead to what's next. We're obsessed with what's next. And he, he did a lot of work in Thailand, and he found that in traditional Thai culture anyway, it was much more situated between the past and the present. And there was much more of a looking back and a connection with family and history and that kind of thing. The second area he talks about is a concept of control. Somewhere between internal and external. You know, what controls us? Where do you think ours is? Internal. Us. We're in control. And, and again, in the, in, the, in the Asian context where he worked, it was much more headed towards the external side. That there's an embrace of the idea that there's external things that shape your life that you can't control. We hate that. We're allergic to that. Work. Thai work and, and, and work, work in, in the space he worked was about quality of life. You know, it's part of your life, there's enough of it, but it's just part of the whole. And for here, it's all about achievement. And it's 100% pegged on the achievement side of the scale. And the final one is um, status, which you can't see, it's at the bottom. But um, status in, in the Asian culture where he worked was conferred, was given to you, primarily. Here, it's achieved. So we just look at, just take a, it's a quick snapshot, but what it all nets out to is this, that we make our own lives, that all the responsibility is on us, and it's somewhat unique to this 
North American context. In fact, we all happen to live in the capital of self-powered achievement called New York City. Sort of a, and, it's, and it's a distinct thing about our culture. And, and there's a drive behind it. And for the drive behind it, I want to turn to uh, a French historian and politician. His name is Alexis de Tocqueville. And, and because one of the things that I, th I wonder about, and I wonder, is it just a now thing that we're always just, we are just, we have this ache for more and we're so driven to improve? Is this a now thing? Is this a contemporary thing? Is this part of, of you know, just, is it Facebook envy or something that just, just fuels all this? And what's really interesting, and when you dial into some history, you know, it's always been that way here. Always. And de Tocqueville was here in the 19th century. And he's just an astute thinker and observer. This is what he says about us. He says, men easily attain a certain equality of condition, but they can never attain as much as they desire. What they desire perpetually retires from before them, yet without hiding itself from their sight. And as it retires, and in retiring, it draws them on. And in every moment they think they are about to grasp it, it escapes at every moment from their hole. They are near enough to see its charms, but too far off to enjoy them. Before they have fully tasted its delights, they die. Cheery soul. <laughs> this is the reason for the strange melancholy that haunts inhabitants of democratic countries in the midst of abundance. So first, first grid, it's all on us. We've got to make it happen. Second, second piece here is that we are haunted by this desire for more, even in the midst of abundance. We're haunted moving forward. And so that manifests itself in a $10 billion a year self-help industry. It manifests itself in all of those emails that you got over the last week about the things that you should resolve and fix in the new year. All the blog posts, all the advice columns, maybe the few that you actually read, and maybe a list that you actually made. We are haunted, and we are independent. And so we are driven, we ache to be better, to fix ourselves. How do we assess this? How do we assess it? I mean, how do we assess it from a kind of a spiritual perspective, from a biblical frame? There's one point of agreement, and there's two pieces of tension. So the agreement is this. We need to change for the better. There's absolute alignment between kind of our cultural instinct and Jesus in this piece. You know, one of Jesus' favorite words was repent. It doesn't mean penance, which is what we kind of confuse it with sometimes. The penance is this idea of of contritely doing acts to pay for your sins. Repentance means to change your mind and change your course. To alter direction. To become different. And Jesus said repent a lot. So he, he embraces this piece of each of you and of me that says, I need to be better. Where the tension comes is in the question of what needs to change and how to change. Because on the what, I mean, at least for me, as I like sort of go through some of these exercises and think about, well, what, you know, this is this year, what's next year? It's a lot of it has to do with how I'm going to be perceived, 
how much capacity I'm going to be able to bring, which could be about others, but it's often about me, and how I'm going to achieve. I mean, it's, it's about getting that more, that elusive more that the Coke de Tocqueville wrote about. And I think Jesus would, and I'm going to share a little bit of it this morning, I think Jesus would frame it a bit differently in terms of what needs to change. Your spouse might frame it differently, too. And then how we change. You know, how do we change? And for some of us, let's face it, it's just a, it's, it's a passing, it's a fleeting thought. Yeah, I should be better in 2018 than I was in 2017, and then we're back in the grind and it's gone. You know, or it's just a wish. Yeah, maybe I should. You know, that kind of thing. For others of us, it's a bit more intentional, and it's about intel, intel or education and willpower. And those are really important pieces, but not the piece that we're going to talk about today. Not the piece we're going to talk about today. So we have a religious picture obsession. We would ache for more. It's up to us to make it happen. Jesus agrees we need to change, but his frame is different. And that, that's what gets us into the macro problems, which is the second part of the sermon. And they're really found in each of the scriptures that, that were read for us. First in Jeremiah, it says we have a sourcing problem. Jeremiah says, my people have committed two sins. They've abandoned me, the source of living water, and they've dug for themselves cisterns that can't hold water. You know, they've given up the legitimate source of life and power and wisdom, and they've gone off and built cheap facsimiles that won't even work. That's what they've done. And it's a sourcing problem. It has to do with, with what or whom do we look to for our sense of life and power and vitality and peace? <coughs> Jeremiah says, people make the wrong choice. If they choose something that will actually never deliver. This is probably the easiest of the macro problems for you to swallow this morning. Because all of us know, I mean, your strategy is only as good as the intel upon which it's based. We, we know that. You know, the, you know the, the people that you rely on to make whatever it is happen that you rely on them to make happen, it's only as good as they are. And so Jeremiah's kind of a straight up pitch of saying, what you've chosen isn't going to deliver. There's kind of a existential hook in that, that things could be better, so that we can tolerate that one. The second one's much harder, and it's the citizenship problem. In Colossians, Paul says, you were part of the realm of darkness. He says, you were delivered from the domain, sorry, of darkness. It's the realm, the kingdom of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. You're part of one kingdom, and it was dark. And he uses somewhat similar imagery in his letter to the Ephesians when he says, you know, you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. There's kind of a two-step piece here that's hard for us to swallow, particularly with our scientific view of reality. Because the first thing he's saying is that there is a spiritual conflict going on between two, two kingdoms. There's a dark kingdom and a light kingdom. There's a kingdom of God and there's a kingdom of this figure called the prince of this world, the ruler of the air, a.k.a. Satan. The, word, the name Satan means adversary. And so there's this cosmic conflict going on behind the scenes. 
You probably didn't wake up thinking about that this morning. It probably didn't play into your thoughts about New Year's resolutions. And what's worse about what he's saying is that by default, we end up on the wrong side. By default, he says, you know, you were part of the realm of darkness. You were going along with the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the ways, because you followed the ways of the world. Like you, not only are there sides, which we don't like, that's very polarizing and judgmental, and you're on the wrong one. You're on the wrong one. I'm not sure it'd be a comfort to tell you, but Jesus talked about this a lot. He confronted evil powers very directly, verbally. He released people from spiritual oppression. He talked about the devil and defeating the devil. It was part of the story. But it's part of it saying what's going on behind the scenes. Is that there is, we, have a, we have a citizenship problem. We're in the wrong kingdom unless we've been transferred into God's kingdom. And just to compliment you even more, we have a death problem. Paul says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You know, something that's dead is incapable of agency. It, it can't do anything. It can't fix itself or rescue itself or heal itself. It's, and we say, if you're dead, you're gone. So Paul writes here, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That, you know, one of the things we talk about here at LMCC is the idea that sin is it's not a few kind of random acts that are less than ideal. It's, it's a bent. It's an instinctive way we function, where we push God aside and do our own thing. And that sort of nature, that nature that we have is manifest in actions, transgressions, if you will. You're dead. I mean, you, you were dead, and you had no capacity. And so, from this frame, from this this list of macro problems, he ends with death. Jesus used the same terminology. He, he frequently referred to people and said, you know, your default is to be your evil. Or your default, he said, in John 5, 25, it says, he says, the time will come, is now come, when the, the dead will hear the, son, the voice of the Son of Man and live. Like, this is the, the problem is worse than we thought part of the morning. It's more cosmic, it's more unseen, it's more outside of our control. It's worse than we think. Of course, we're not really left there. I, I don't want to leave you there. None of the texts leave us there. You know, where you came from, and this with the death and the kingdom thing and everything. It's, it's, it can be in the rearview mirror because <coughs> solutions are offered to these problems. And that gets to the third part this morning, which I call outside intervention. Because with each of these macro problems, there's a solution, a Jesus-centric one. So with the sourcing problem that we reject by instinct, we reject the, well, the source of living water and we go off and build wells for ourselves that can't hold water. Jesus comes and says, I am the living water. 
I offer to you a source of wisdom and life and power that you can never exhaust, that will never let you down, that will be a source of security that will flow, that will be found that inside you it will flow up out of you. He says it in John chapter 4, the women of the well, I offer this living water. He cries out at a feast, it's recorded in John chapter 7, to a crowd, and he says, come and I offer you this living water. Even at the end of, of the Bible itself, in the book, at the end of the book of Revelation, it says, anybody who's thirsty, anybody who's willing to come, come, and I will give you the water of life. So this is a metaphor that's repeated over and over and over and over again. Despite our, our uh, arrogance that we think we can handle it on our own, Jesus says, I know, I, I, I'm still, I still want to offer you this. I'll solve your sourcing problem. I'll solve your sourcing problem. And then on the, on the death issue, it, it's, it's all one sentence. He says, you were dead, but now you've been made alive. You were dead in your sins, but your sins have been forgiven. You were stuck in a certain way, but you've been rescued from that way and the consequences of it. And not only are you just, you're not just rescued, but you are made a new creation with new work to do. And that's all in the flow here of Ephesians chapter 2. And we just sang it in the psalm before the sermon about Jesus coming and being victorious. He's a conquering general who comes on a mission of liberation. That's the story. That's the picture. That's what it's saying he offers us. That's the outside intervention that he brings. That he takes what's dead and he makes it alive. He takes what's weighed down in guilt and mired in shame and says, I value you and I love you and I came here for you and I've come to make you alive make you alive. It's one of our favorite verses here at LMCC. I come to give you life abundantly. And this is kind of the mechanics of how that happens at a deep spiritual level. Now the kingdom piece, the citizenship piece, it says he transfers us. And some of you know the experience of immigration. How long and hard and nerve-wracking it is. So I transfer your citizenship from one kingdom to another, from a from your default kingdom to God's kingdom, from what was old and destructive, from a kingdom of an evil leader who just wants to use you and consume you to steal and kill and destroy, to the kingdom of God's Son who loves you and wants what's best for you. This transfer takes place. This change of citizenship takes place. It's almost like a prisoner swap. And so with all of these things, what I think we need to see is that there's some macro problems that affect us in our world. And a person who surrenders to Jesus opens the door for God to do something to them. To transact something on their behalf. They, they experience something of a shift. It's almost like, I mean, if you're a tech person, it's almost like a, a whole new OS system is put in. It's like, if you're a construction person, a whole new foundation is laid. You know, language we use pretty frequently these days is platform. There's all kinds of platforms. It's like, whether it's a software platform or a business platform or a trading platform. 
It's like the, the platform has been switched at a spiritual, supernatural, fundamental level. This is what outside intervention does for us. The outside intervention that Jesus brings. It's a pretty fundamental, foundational kind of vision of what can and needs to change. But what do we do with this? What do we do with it? You know, I know for some of you, uh, this is hard to take. Um, and your friend drug you to church, and it's the first Sunday of the year. Maybe it was your resolution, and we've got angels and demons, and it sounds like a cross between uh, Da Vinci Code and Harry Potter, and it's, you know, it's not really, it's just, it's just exactly what you feared. And it is hard for us, even those of us who say we believe it, it is really hard for us to imagine an unseen conflict behind the, the things we see and immerse ourselves in every day. And it's hard to, to accept the idea that we could be by default on the wrong side of that conflict. And perhaps the most offensive thing about the whole picture is that, you know, it's, we need outside intervention. We can't even fix it. So if you're, you know, if you're skeptical, I, I just urge you to wrestle with two questions. The first question is this. Why is our world so hard to fix? Why is our world so hard to fix? I mean, New York is in some ways the capital of many things. It's the capital of the fixers. You know, we've got the UN, tons of nonprofits. We spend billions of dollars in fixing the world. Some things get better, some things get worse. Even when something goes away as a macro problem that we collectively think about, something else takes its, its place. Why, why does it take so long? Why is there always something that seems to be terribly wrong? Why are human beings so, so good at being so bad to each other? And even corporate and systemic ways. And the other question I'd ask you, if, if this is hard for you to swallow, is why are you so hard to change? Yeah, I know, you've probably achieved a lot, and you've done well, and you know, your triathlon time is better this year than last year. Congratulations. But there are things about you you know need to change that you can't change. Why? Maybe there's more afoot than you can see. Just maybe. That's really what we looked at this morning. I just urge you to think about that, ponder that, to challenge and know. Maybe even pray, do the daring prayer, God, if this whole kind of spiritual war reality world is true. I don't want to see the whole thing, but just give me a glimpse, you know, so that I can know that's not crazy. Some of this is really hard to take. And for other, uh, others of us, I think we find ourselves sort of in the middle with it, you know, we would say we're, we believe in Jesus and, and those types of things, and we're not, you know, we don't advertise to our friends that we believe in the devil and all that stuff, but it's not on our Facebook status, you know, whatever, it's not about me, but when it comes to this kind of cosmic level of struggle, there's a lot of white still on the page, like, we're not really sure we really wrestled with this very much. We thought about what the implications might be. I mean, you know, when I read this, the descriptions of things, in, especially in Ephesians 2, when it says, you know, I was dead, but I was made alive, you know, and I was, I was uh, stuck in this 
terrible way of life and now I'm raised. It says I'm seated with Christ in heaven. You know, I, I was an object of wrath and now I'm a new creation. I think, you know, if that's really true, I should be the happiest, most optimistic guy in the room. But a lot of times I'm the most anxious guy in the room. And I just think there's a lot, there's a lot of potential in that to hope for and be realized. And so if you kind of relate to this that way, then, you know, come back next week. That's where we're going. How do we realize this? But the third thing, I think, is for some of us, even if we wouldn't have said it this way, we know there's something true in all this. Death to life, kingdom of darkness, kingdom of God's son. Wells and cisterns that can't hold water and the living one. We know there's something true in this. Because we, we may not be able to describe it very well, we may not use these terms, but we know something has happened to us that we can't fully explain. For some of us, it's happened here. You know, we don't believe any of this. It's just something hit us, something clicked. It's like our software system changed. But for me, I look back on my life, um, when I look back at where I started as, an, as a young adult, I mean, the, the most concise way to summarize it is I was a selfish bastard. I was. I just was so determined to make as much money as quickly as I could, as fast as I could for me. And if you got in my way, I rolled right over you. And somehow, graciously, I realized that well couldn't hold water. And I didn't have, I didn't have like a lightning bolt thing. I had a dawning thing. The sun slowly rose kind of experience. It really changed my life. Jesus changed my life. He changed what really matters to me. When I think about what I've really tried to pursue in my life, in my career, and the work that I want to do to help people, which is really different than where I started. When I think about some of the relationships I, I enjoy, people that have tolerated me. I think I'm a miracle. Something happened to me that I can't fully explain. And one of the things I love about our church is that there's a lot of you right now who are saying, yeah, Chip, me too. I'm a miracle too. I, I can't fully explain it. But something Something happened to me. Something supernatural. Something fundamental. And I'm different. It's like we could say, Jesus is our resolution. And those of us who've had that experience, we want to say to all the rest of you, He can be your resolution too. God, this is like kind of one of those days when you thought everything was good and you just find out it's, it's all a mess. It's much more complicated than you thought. And you take us down into that valley only to show us that you've got it covered. Our condition is worse than we imagined, but your provision is bigger than, than it all. So Lord, collectively and individually, we just invite you to be our resolution this morning.